Our text this morning, as we hear from the living God in his word, is Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 to 4. And it'd be helpful if you have your Bibles open there at the page where Benita read a moment ago to us. We are studying the book of Hebrews at Christ the King. We're four weeks into it now as of this week, and we are coming now into chapter 2. And maybe it will seem to you slightly ambitious to begin this way, especially if you're just joining us this morning. But I want to start off my sermon this morning with a theological question. What would you say if someone, maybe a friend, maybe a neighbor, it could be a Christian or a non-Christian, what would you say if he or she asked you, what is salvation? Have you ever been asked that? If you've attempted to share the content of your faith with others or just talk uh, with others, you, you talk about salvation. What is it? The pastor writing Hebrews poses a haunting rhetorical question in verse 3 of our text this morning. He says, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation. And that's, that's the whole point this morning, right? We won't escape if we neglect such a great salvation. The pastor's entire concern here is to warn us against doing that. So what's he talking about? What is salvation? And once we know what it is, what would neglecting it entail? I realize that the, the coming many chapters of Hebrews are going to clarify these points, but the terminology is already being used here. So I want to start this morning by sketching something of what I think this means as I read the scriptures to put us on the right track early on. Let me make a distinction first. Sometimes when we Christians talk about salvation, what we mean is how we're saved, right? So we say things like salvation meets us at the cross or we've been saved by the blood of Jesus. That's good. It's not wrong to say things like that because sometimes the Bible talks that way. Salvation can, does include the means by which we're saved, which of course, is the incarnation and death of Jesus Christ on the cross for sins. That's going to be the focus next week, in fact. But other times in the Bible, the focus isn't so much on how we're saved as it is on what we're being saved to. What the goal of salvation is. And it's that goal that I think Hebrews has primarily in focus from the very beginning of the sermon. So the way I want to put it this morning in preparation for our text today and in order to try and help us as we move along in Hebrews is this. I want us to consider that salvation is ultimately a place. Salvation is a place. And the simplest way to explain what I mean by that is to say that the place of salvation is the place where God dwells. It's the place of the holy God of Israel. And that place, brothers and sisters, is where Hebrews is taking us. 
because arrival at that place has always been the hope of the people of God from the very beginning. It's what Abraham himself was looking for. Did you realize that? Turn over, if you, if you would, to Hebrews 11. I know that in these early sermons from Hebrews, I just keep jumping to the end of the sermon all the time, but that's intentional because this forms the backstory of the history of Hebrews, and I want you to see the trajectory that the pastor's putting us on now. If you don't mind, turn over to Hebrews chapter 11. Why, why did Abraham have faith? According to Hebrews chapter 11, where verse 9 it says, Abraham was going to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. What was the promise? Ready? Here's the answer, verse 10. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Do you see that? I mean, that, that's Abraham. And then from Abraham, verse 12 of chapter 11 says, From one man were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven. Verse 13, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, what was the promise? Having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth, verse 14, they were seeking a homeland, it says. Well, that doesn't mean they wanted to go home. No. Jump to verse 16. They desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. Why? What did they get right about God? For he has prepared for them a city. They were right to be looking ahead, way ahead beyond themselves for that city. Salvation is a place, brothers and sisters. It's where Abraham was heading. And according to Hebrews, it's where we hope to come in the end, too. When we come to what Hebrews in chapter 12, verse 22 calls Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. The hope of God's people all through history has been that they will one day dwell with God. That's the core of salvation, you see. It's life with God. It's what was lost when sin entered the world. What lies before us as Christians, assuming we continue in faith, is the joy-filled celebration of arrival at the city of God, where we delight in knowing that God's face will finally fully shine on us, or you could say it's life as it was meant to be, and its life as it will be forever in the new heavens and the new earth. This is the biblical hope, all creation renewed in the presence of God as God's people, Abraham's seed, as we'll see in the next couple weeks, live in covenant relationship with him and with our neighbors 
All of which means there's a goal in view as we live our lives, brothers and sisters. And in Hebrews, the pastor is summoning us to move towards it. As one scholar puts it, Hebrews portrays salvation as primarily a future destination for the people of God who are on pilgrimage toward it. And I start off this sermon in chapter 2, verses 1 to 4 by saying all of that because the pastor knows where he's going. So that when we come into our text this morning, if we understand this concept of salvation, then maybe we're not so surprised to discover that a key element of salvation for Hebrews is the need for perseverance. We've already seen this. You have need of endurance, our pastor writes in chapter 10, verse 36, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. You see, it's all about the Son bringing about the promise. Hebrews, Hebrews only makes sense when we recognize that you and I, like Abraham, like Isaac, like all those who died in faith, which is what? The assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Hebrews only makes sense when we recognize that we're to live our lives with a destination in mind, brothers and sisters. The Christian life is a pilgrimage to the heavenly homeland, and faith is the mode of living on the way, or a life of obedience to the end, as we've already said before. And I'll just add this now this morning, that according to our passage this morning and several others to come in Hebrews, if one abandons the path, one does not arrive at the goal. There is no salvation apart from faith. So that as chapter 11, verse 6 says, without faith, it is impossible to please God. And so, the pastor writing Hebrews can't wait any longer. The first exhortation of the sermon must now sound forth in chapter 2, verse 1. It will be echoed in several places, climactically at the very end of the whole sermon. But here in our text, he says, Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. Now, for those of you who are just joining us or visiting this morning, Let's briefly look back at chapter 1. Chapter 1 of Hebrews began with an introduction in which the primary point was in verse 2. In these last days, God has spoken to us by his Son, the pastor wrote. Chapter 1, then, was an extended exposition of the glory of the Son as Jesus. That is, the Son who, according to verse 3, chapter 1, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, who, according to verse 2, is the heir of all things and, in fact, was the agent of creation itself. That Son took on flesh. God the Son became a man. John says the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Now, the author of Hebrews hasn't said exactly that in so many words. That's next week. But it's all entailed, if you recall, in verse 3 of chapter 1, where the pastor does say that the Son as Jesus made purification for sins. Remember that? 
the Son came as Jesus Christ. He made purification for sins on the cross. And then the end of verse 3 brought us to the, the climactic scene where the pastor says, the Son as Jesus then sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. In other words, Jesus was raised from the dead. He ascended into glory as a man now in a glorified physical body for eternity. That's where he is the whole rest of chapter 1. We saw last week how the pastor is writing primarily to present this vision of the Son as Jesus enthroned in the heavenly realm superior to the angels. So that in other words, chapter 1 is a declaration and a celebration of the greatness of the Son as Jesus, the final word of God. Coming then into chapter 2 this morning, we see that all of that is now entailed in what the pastor will urge us to do. Chapter 2, verse 1 begins with, therefore, therefore, he says, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard. With the glory of the Son, as Jesus, now ringing in our ears, if we're listening to this sermon, the pastor sounds his first warning to the church in chapter 2, verses 1 to 4. That's where we are this morning. It's a short text. It isn't very difficult in terms of its structure. The main point of the text comes right up front in the exhortation in verse 1. That's where we'll spend most of the rest of our time. But then after that exhortation in verse 1, or the warning, the rest of the passage then functions to support it. You see that. That's why verse 2 begins with the word for. Beginning in verse 2, the pastor is saying why we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard. Make sense? Now, verses 2 through 4 in the English are two sentences, but it may help for you to at least know that in the Greek, it's just one, verses 2 to 4, one elegant sentence, so that the whole thing after verse 1 is the pastor telling us why we have to pay close attention to what we've heard. There's a negative and a positive aspect to that. So that's my sermon now. We'll look at the exhortation in verse 1, and then at the explanation in verses 2 to 4, only very quickly at the end. And the whole thing is within the frame of understanding the concept of salvation. Listen, firstly, to the exhortation once again. Verse 1, Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, or I like to translate it, we must pay closest attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. If everything we saw in chapter 1 is true, if God has spoken to us by his Son, if the Son is the creator and sustainer and redeemer and ruler, then it only makes sense we are to pay attention to that in our lives. Of course, the question is, what does that mean? How do we do that? It may help if we start with what the pastor says is the danger that comes if we don't do that. You see it there. He says, pay attention lest we drift away. To drift away could mean a couple of things. In literature outside of the Bible, the word that's translated there, drift away, can occasionally be used for example, to describe a ring slipping off a finger. But more, more frequently, the word is employed in nautical imagery. 
either with the sense of a ship whose anchor has broken loose and is now dangerously drifting away, or if you're talking about a ship that's at sail, it has the sense of the vessel beginning to drift off course as it goes. In both of those nautical possibilities, hear this, the key idea is that the drifting is something that happens largely unnoticed, right? Perhaps you can't even detect the changes while it's happening. It's only going to be later on that the consequences become clear. In other words, I don't think the kind of drifting that the pastor's warning them about here is intentional. Rather, it comes from inattentiveness, from carelessness. There's a sense of passive neglect, to use the very term that will come up in the parallel phrase in verse 3. Only, you see, then the day comes. And if you've been drifting from the anchor or the harbor, then maybe you're near the rocks when a storm shows up and it's too late. Or if you've been sailing long enough off of the course you're supposed to be on, then maybe the point comes where you can't even locate your proper destination in time to correct it. Either way, the problem... The, 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 the problem appears, the sense we get, is that those who are not anchored or moving toward God are instead simply drifting away. This is the first of five major warning passages in Hebrews. It's the most gentle one. But if you were to look at all of them, which would be worth doing, but we won't, you'd, you'd see that in all five of the warning passages in Hebrews, the pastor's dealing with the danger of falling away from faith and therefore, listen, from salvation. Because, remember, salvation is a place. It's something we're moving towards by faith. It is not possible for me to make too big a deal about this in Hebrews. And therefore, in our own text this morning, one preacher that I read this week talking about this verse says, quote, drifting is the besetting sin of our day. He's probably right. It's probably always been the case. We grow unconcerned. Usually there's no dramatic sense of departure from anything, but then when the winds of trouble come, the things of Christ are left far behind or even out of sight. Jesus said to the church in Ephesus in Revelation chapter 2, verse 4, I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. You know people like that, don't you? Who once had a burning devotion to the Lord. But now, what happened? Well, probably there's lots of individual circumstances and Situations could be different in every case, but whatever the individual circumstance, there's one thing we can know. They did not keep in view the great salvation. And that means they did not pay careful attention, which is what we must do, verse 1 says. Literally, you could translate it, it is exceedingly necessary that we pay close attention to what we have heard. So let me say a few things about attentiveness. How do we do this? How do we pay attention? 
Well, since it's the opposite of drifting, to pay attention here means holding to a course. It means securing the anchor. Or in terms of later Hebrews passages, it means holding fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, chapter 10. Going on in maturity, chapter 6. Running with endurance the race that is set before us, chapter 12. Looking to Jesus. You see, drifting happens on its own without much effort on our part. Paying attention requires diligence. There's a well-known passage in uh, C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity that speaks to this. Lewis writes, We have to be continually reminded of what we believe. Neither this belief nor any other will automatically remain alive in your mind. It must be fed. And as a matter of fact, if you examined a hundred people who had lost their faith in Christianity, I wonder how many of them would turn out to have been reasoned out of it by honest argument. Do not most people simply drift away? Lewis is right. And I would say then, practically speaking, that the kind of attentiveness that our pastor calls for includes two aspects. It includes, firstly, an attentiveness of thought or cognition. And it includes, secondly, an attentiveness of action or behavior. First, there, of course, needs to be a growing understanding in our thinking concerning the content of the Word of God. We need to listen to the Son by whom God has spoken. Which means, of course, that we need to listen to the Scriptures. Since the Scriptures are where God has spoken clearly about the Son. So the question is an obvious one. Where are we making that a priority? to listen to the Bible in our lives. We make provisions for listening to the things we want to listen to. We, we make sure we're not too distracted so that we can hear them properly. I mean, even literally sometimes, right? We put on our noise-canceling headphones on the subway. <laughs> we carve out a time for a phone call. We go to a quiet place with a friend or a loved one for a conversation. Well, in these last days, God has spoken by his son. Are we listening? Where is that happening in your life, Christian? Because the point is we have to plan and work to make space to listen to Jesus. That's the point, to consider Jesus, to focus on Jesus, to stay close to Jesus. That requires habits like prayer, like Bible reading, like studying the scriptures with others, like not forsaking meeting with one another like listening carefully to good sermons and so on. We must pay attention in our thoughts. Jesus says in John chapter 8, verses 32 and 33, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth, listen, will set you free. Which is what then leads into the second area of attentiveness that's required in our lives. Because when Jesus says we'll be set free, he means we'll be free to do his will. Along with our growing understanding in a cognitive sense, there has to be a growing attentiveness in our embodied behavior. If Hebrews teaches us anything, it's that faith isn't just about what we think. 
not all who give professions of faith are true believers. It's the life of faith that we want. Faith as obedience to the end. So that paying attention here means doing what Jesus commands. That's what reinforces the guiding values of our lives. We know that. We know the power of habit. <laughs> it means loving others. Caring for the poor. Seeking justice. Counting others more significant than ourselves. You get the idea. You know that according to the Bible, you cannot separate hearing from doing. It's what Paul in Galatians called the hearing of faith. Remember? Micah 6 verse 8 comes to mind. He has told you, O man, what is good. Have you heard it? What does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? So let's ask ourselves, please, what is it that we need to be attentive to do this week? If you love me, you will keep my commandments, Jesus says in John chapter 14, verse 15. Peter tells us in 2 Peter 1, verse 10, be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 13, verse 5, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. There is no benign inattentiveness, brothers and sisters. So now we come towards the end of our time this morning, and I, I need briefly at least to turn to consider the explanation that our pastor supplies here in verses 2 to 4. Verses 2 to 4 are the support for all that. They make clear why that exhortation needs to be taken so seriously. And as I said, there's a negative part of it and there's a positive part of it. And just hold on, because what, what, what's, what I'm going to say here is going to be very quick and it's going to be very dense. And don't worry, because a lot of these thought patterns are precisely where Hebrews is going to take us for months and months. So if I rattle things off here and you just say, I don't know what just happened, it's because we'll fill it in, explain it all. But look at it. First comes the negative support beginning in verse 2. For, since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? What you see here is an argument that moves from the lesser thing to the greater thing. Pastor of Hebrews loves that. Last week we commented, if you were here, on how the Old Covenant or the law was understood to have been declared by angels. The point here isn't in the fact that the law was mediated by angels. The point is that as a law which was mediated by angels, it was valid. It was binding. It was reliable, as the ESV translates it. It's legal terminology. Clearly, the angelic word wasn't the last and definitive word spoken through the Son. The one, the Son, who is called in chapter 3 the founder of our salvation. But, the pastor says, it was still a reliable and sure word, and the way you know that it was reliable is that every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, the pastor says. God has never taken sin lightly. Rejecting the divine will and refusing to hear what was declared brought consequences. 
And you know, those consequences operated on a number of levels, but perhaps most significantly, they played out over the course of the history of Israel, didn't they? So, for example, you read Deuteronomy chapter 28, and what you find is a litany of covenant curses. Verse 15 of Deuteronomy 28 says, But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God, or be careful to do all his commandments and his statutes, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. Which is precisely what happened. The curses declared in the law were realized when the people as a whole walked unfaithfully, and so the message declared by angels proved to be reliable. But then if that's the lesser thing in the argument, what's the greater? Well, it's this. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? Or in other words, if we neglect that which came not from angels, but from the Son, including all that the Son has made possible now through the cross, the new covenant that finally fully deals with the fundamental issue of sin, that issues in the way to that final great salvation that we just spent the whole first part of our sermon talking about. If retribution came on those who failed to hear God's old covenant mediated by angels, how much more should we expect not to escape if we are found to neglect the new covenant spoken by the Son, who even made purification for sins to bring it about? The stakes are higher now. See? <laughs> the stakes are higher now, given what Jesus accomplishes for us in establishing the new covenant. He himself made clear that the stakes are higher. He talked about what the law really meant. Do you realize that? Remember Jesus' presentation of the law in the Gospels? particularly in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus Christ brings every nuance and spiritual demand of the law into view. He says things like, you've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Jesus didn't lower the demands of the law or remove the covenant curses for breaking it. Rather, he presented the law in terms of its inner, higher spiritual demands. Why? Because Jesus was commanding that we live out of hearts that have been washed clean. Because that's what he does for us. Because he made the prophetic promise of the law written on our hearts a reality. In dying on the cross, he would forgive our sins. He would cleanse us. He would make it possible for the Holy Spirit to dwell. To write the law on our hearts, thereby to live in covenant faithfulness with the Lord that we might, what? Inherit salvation which is why we must now run the race, live by faith, pay closest attention to what we have heard. There can be no escape if we neglect that great salvation. 
Which brings me, I'm on the last page, finally to the positive explanation for the exhortation in verse 1 that you find then in the rest of verse 3 and into verse 4 of our text. And I'll just explain it briefly. It was declared at first by the Lord, the pastor writes. It was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. The basic point is this. The gospel has come to us from the Lord himself, God's own son, who came from heaven to earth to be our savior. Jesus proclaimed it in his words and in his actions. Paul writes in 1 Timothy 2, for there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. But what's more, our, sir, our pastor says, this salvation was attested to us by those who heard. In other words, we can know, his readers could know, that this great salvation message really is of the Lord. For the apostles attested to it. They passed it along from faith to faith through the succeeding generation. And then lastly, he says, God himself bore witness. When the apostles came to preach and witness to what they'd seen and heard, God himself enabled them to do miracles. He poured out on new believers gifts of the Holy Spirit. This is technical terminology. You find it all over Acts, as you do in other places. He still does this today. So if the word of the law that was mediated by angels was so binding that every infraction was punished, how much more accountable are those who have the word of salvation directly now from the Lord Jesus, confirmed by eyewitnesses, testified to by God through miracles and signs and wonders and gifts? You see, the facts are clear. God has spoken. The new covenant has been confirmed. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? The answer is that we won't. Some in that small house church were in danger. Maybe some of us are in danger too. The only antidote is to go back to our pastor's exhortation. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard. This is the pastor's primary concern all through this sermon. It's the call to persevering faith. To heed it brings salvation. Life in the presence of God and therefore life in a world that is all good and truth and beauty. To refuse it brings death in the absence of God. There can be no escape. It has always been this way. I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse, Moses said to the people of Israel in Deuteronomy 30. Therefore, choose life. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.